What's up? <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? Hey. hey, why are we here? No, okay, I remember. Hey, hey, let's do this. Hey, we are in week seven in our series uh, that we're calling Family Matters. And, and, and it's been a great series. I mean, talk about a, a biblical teaching that is applicable to our everyday lives. Understand, each week God has been telling us when, that when it comes to the family, when it, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to being single, when it comes to looking for your soulmate, when it comes to parenting in a, in a way that sets your children on a path where they'll serve and honor God, when it comes to ingredients that if you put them into your family, they're guaranteed to work, when it comes to a mindset, mutual submission, what can I do to help, when it, when it comes to praying desperate prayers when you're facing real problems and desperate situations in your family, when it comes to all these things, when it comes to family matters, God says, and has been telling us, this is how you do it. This is where you begin. This is, this is what works. This is a path that if you take it, will lead to life, healing, and abundant blessings for your family. Get it? Good. And remember, as Jesus said in the upper room, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you, if you do them, if you live them out, if you put them into practice, if you're not only hearers of the word. Uh, turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, I, I really need to do these things. Now tell them, you really need to do these things. <laughs> That's even more fun, right? I'll take Starbucks cards for that one. Uh, now, this morning, we're going to meet another biblical family, David's family. We're going to talk about something that every family has in common, conflict. Conflict. Got any? I mean, raise your hands if you ever experienced any conflict in a relationship with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, with your in-laws. We had people in first service that were raising their feet, man, making sure all ten toes were pointing up, right? I mean, conflict. And and one thing we learn very quickly in life is that when it comes to close family relationships, conflict is inevitable. It's, it's going to happen. And another thing we also learn quickly is that family conflict is like no other. Because when you win an argument in your family, you don't really win anything. I understand in so many ways, even though you win, it still kind of feels like you lost something. I mean, when you win an argument at work, when you win in the courtroom, when you win on the ball field, there's a reward. But if you win an argument in the living room or the bedroom, there isn't. You feel good, but there's really no win because your win means that someone else in your family has what? That they, they've lost. Yeah, conflict in the family is like conflict nowhere else, except maybe in God's family, the church. And so today, as we take a look at the family life of David, we'll, we'll see that though this slingshot-wielding giant slayer was very proficient at dealing with conflict on the battlefield, I mean, dress this guy in armor, give him a sword and shield, and it was game on. But when it came to dealing with conflict in his own home, David was pretty much a lightweight. He, he, was, a, he was a failure. He, he was a bust. So today we're going to look at some of David's not-so-pretty family stories. Now there's a popular way of telling stories these days where you tell the dramatic conclusion at the beginning, and then you go back and you show all the things that led up to that ending. You've seen this in movies and TVs, maybe in books. The conclusion comes first, right? 
and you watch it and you think, man, how did they get here, right? And, and then they say, six weeks earlier, right? And then you watch, you go, oh, okay, that's how things got to this crazy messed up point. It's, it's a literary device called reverse chronology. So when it comes to David and his family issues, we're going we're gonna to start with a scene that happens toward the end of David's life. It's a pretty messed up scene uh, with his family, and, and, and then we're going to do some reverse chronology to try to figure out, hey, how did it get so messed up? All right, how did they reach such a tragic ending? And, and so let's, let's pray into the message, and you know, a lot of times I like us to pray with our palms open. It's just symbolic. It, I'm not forcing you. It's just symbolic to say, God, I'm ready to receive from you, and, and uh, especially you that had your feet and toes up for conflict. This could be a good one for you today. Uh, God, we love you, and we need you, and, and God, in this room today are a bunch of relationships, and some of us maybe are in conflict right now. Uh, maybe it's with uh, our spouse. Maybe it's with an ex-spouse. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe it's with their mom or dad, a brother, a sister, God. Maybe it's with an, an in-law, God. Um, and it's just really stressful. And God, you don't like conflict. And, and Lord, you've never been in conflict among yourself. And you're a God who breaks down walls of hostility. And God, I just pray um, that for those who would long to see conflict uh, handled in their family in a better way, I pray that they will have ears to hear and eyes to see. And God, I, I pray that you enable me to, to speak for you in, in a way that brings you honor. And God, please forgive the sins of the speaker here, God, because there are many. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, now, now David's family was one of the most dysfunctional families in all the Bible. I mean, you probably know David more of a, more of a giant killer, psalm writer, and as a king, but in the next few minutes, we're going to see him as a, as a dad, as a father, and, and as a husband. And the dramatic conclusion that we're going to look at takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we catch up to David here. He, he's a grandfather. He's in his mid-60s. He's been king for about 30 years, and he's married to quite a few different women. Uh, one wife he hasn't slept with in decades, uh, another one worships the ground he walks on, but it's a dysfunctional relationship. Another wife he had an affair with and later had her husband killed to cover up her pregnancy. And like I said throughout this series, all the families in the Bible are pretty messed up. Um, I mean, there's enough material in the Bible to provide Dr. Phil with enough shows to last until Jesus uh, returns. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And this is one of his sons. So David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him. Are, are you picturing this incredible scene? David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. I mean, what a, what a powerful and tragic scene. David, the king of Israel, the, the great warrior, the giant slayer, is forced to leave the palace. He's forced to leave his own city because his very own son was marching on the city to overthrow him. Now we watch this and we think, how did this happen? How did things go so bad in this family? I mean, what in the world could have happened that 
led to such a tragic conclusion. And understand, as crazy as it sounds, a rebellion of the king that led to tens of thousands of people dying was a direct result of David's inability to deal with conflict in his own home. You see, when it came to family conflict, David was clueless on how to deal with it. Listen, if we just rewind the story, just two, two chapters, to chapter 13, we, we see a, a, a prime example of this inability. Again, on the battlefield, he is a giant killer. When it came to conflict in the home, when it came time to step up and deal with conflict as a parent, David was not a warrior. He was a wimp, totally inept. Here's what goes down in 2 Samuel 13. It opens up, and we meet two of David's children, Amnon and Tamar. That's a little complicated. David has multiple wives, so uh, if David is their dad, they have different mothers, so they are half-brother and half-sister. And the Bible says that Tamar, she's, she's gorgeous, she's beautiful, and it says that Amnon, you know, thought she was so incredibly beautiful and gorgeous that he, he, he lusted after her so bad that Scripture says that he almost became sick because of it, and he devised a plan. He asked his dad, hey, dad, I'm not feeling very well today. Could Tamar come and could she take care of me? And once he's alone with her, Amnon forces himself on Tamar. He rapes her, his own half-sister. And this all takes place right under David's nose. See, at this time, David was very focused on his job as a king, but he was totally out of touch with what was going on in his own home. Whoever eventually does hear about it, word eventually gets to him, and Scripture says, here's his response. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And that's it. That's it. That's all we read. We don't hear about him taking any action. There was no family meeting. Like, hey, this is not a good thing to do. Nothing. He just gets mad and ticked off about it. And a little further down in 2 Samuel 13, we're introduced to another one of David's son. And his name is, you guess it, it's Absalom. And he is the actual full brother of, of, of Tamar. And when he hears what happened to his little sister, sexually abused by someone she should have been able to trust, he's furious. And he figures out pretty soon, hey, you know what? Dad is not going to do a thing about this. Therefore, he, he, he plans his own scheme for revenge. And he waits two years. And then in 2 Samuel 13, verse 28, we read that at a family meal, basically, he has his brother Amnon murdered. And where was David when this happened? Where David always was at times like this. Nowhere to be found. And now David and Absalom, this father and son, they become estranged for years. They, they don't talk. They're pretty much never in the same room again. And, and, uh, and this goes on for about seven years. And seven years later, Absalom declares war on his own dad and tries to take his own dad's throne. Like I said, we read this story, and, and it seems almost out of place. I mean, it just comes up on you. And you think, how did this happen? I didn't see this coming. I mean, it's not an enemy. It's not a foreign power coming to take his throne. It's his own kid. And listen, the temptation is to kind of see this as just a horrible day in David's household. It just this day when everything went wrong. However, we're going to keep doing this reverse chronology thing. In fact, we're going to reverse this puppy all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So we're going to skip past David's affair with uh, Bathsheba, uh, which is, by the way, I'm sure Amnon and Absalom knew about, which probably made David think, well, I have no moral authority to talk to my kids about sexual purity. And we're going to 
go past that relationship with Bathsheba. We're going to go past his relationship with Abigail, which was very dysfunctional. And we're going to stop at 2 Samuel 6, where David gets into a heated argument with his first wife, Michael. Now, their marriage, it, it, it was very romantic. Had a romantic beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember, King Saul said, hey, we got this enemy Goliath, and anybody who will challenge him and defeat him, I will give great wealth. I'll exempt him from taxes forever. He can remove April 15th from his calendar, and he gets the hand of my daughter Michael in marriage. Very romantic. And David starts thinking, though, well, you know what? Michael doesn't sound like a girl's name. So he expresses concern about this to the king. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 7, he says, Freedom from taxes for all, the, all my days is quite pleasing, but may I see a picture of your daughter. Right? That's not in there, okay? <laughs> don't even check. Don't even bother. But it does make you wonder, right? I mean, he had to be thinking, all right, if I'm going to get this daughter's hand, what, what, does she, what does she look like? Well, anyway, it's this romantic beginning. David kills Goliath. Great moment of victory. He's brought him as a hero. He marries Michael, the king's daughter. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 17. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where we stopped off a few minutes ago, David is king, and he's leading this great crowd of people, this great parade, and they're bringing the ark of God into the city of Jerusalem for the very first time. So this is a time of a great day of victory for David as a king, as a God follower and a God worshiper. I mean, he's so excited about this that he takes his robes off and he begins to dance before the Lord in the streets. Basically, you know, he's wearing his you know, Spider-Man boxers out there, right? And, and his wife is, Michael's not only embarrassed by all this, but she's resentful and bitter towards him. And so David, he comes home, he's excited, dancing in his boxers, and we pick up the reading in verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar, vulgar, vulgar fellow would do. I mean, David, he's coming home, he's excited, he's pumped up, and Micah is immediately critical. And she uses sarcasm to make her point. I don't know, maybe she's feeling a little insecure about him dancing before the slave girls. Maybe she's a little jealous. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Now, did you notice that David's first reaction was to enter the defensive mode? And then once he was there for a few minutes, he went into the attack mode. So we have this argument, and they go, they go back and forth for a while, and then here's how the scene closes in verse 23. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's the Bible's way of saying David had nothing to do with her anymore. He never slept with her again. In fact, if you look through Scripture, she's never mentioned again. This is basically the end of his first marriage. Now, maybe you're not as familiar with that story as with Goliath's story. And it almost surprises me that we have so much attention given to this husband and wife fighting. I mean, the ark of God is going into the city for the first time, but yet God's focus, right, seems to be primarily on, hey, yeah, I know the ark's coming in, but I, I, I want to talk about this fight, this argument between a husband and a wife. And, and here's what I've been wondering all week long. I, I've been wondering if chapter 6 doesn't tell us something about chapter 13 and chapter 15. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if what happened between Michael and, and David doesn't start David's family down the path that leads them to what happens much later with Amnon and Tamar and with Absalom and his rebellion. You see, we have this tendency when a family falls apart to just look at the moment it fell apart, to see the moment when everything went wrong. And, 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 but understand, you can, you can always trace it back to a path, to a, to a way of dealing with conflict and relationships that was chosen many years earlier. So perhaps what we read in chapter 6 is a picture of what's going to happen down the road. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David's inability to deal with family conflict is born. Now, he may have won the argument today with Michael. I think he did. You know, if I was scoring the fight, man, he won on points or maybe even a technical knockout, right? But I don't think he won anything because what he did, he set in motion a relational pattern that would one day nearly destroy everything, his family, his kingdom, and the nation. Now, understand, a family doesn't fall apart in a day. It's kind of like a, a powerful storm that comes blowing through and it knocks down a bunch of trees and the trees fall on homes and they, they fall on cars and, and, and fall on power lines, wreaking all kinds of destruction. And, and we would think initially, well, it was the storm, right? It took down the trees. But if we brought in, they actually have them, right? You brought in a tree surgeon, right? And he would look at them. He'd say, no, 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 no. Because what had been happening to these trees, they've been decaying and rotting underneath the surface for years. You see, the storm was just a moment that the tree happened to fall. In like matter, many times when we see families and relationships collapse, it's not just this moment where everything goes wrong. It's just not some bad decision where everything suddenly falls apart out of nowhere. No, 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 no. It has been heading down this road under the surface for a very long time. And what I want to do this morning is I want to camp out on 2 Samuel chapter 6 and, and unpack some basic ground rules for, for dealing with conflict in a proper way, in a God-honoring way, in a relationship-restoring kind of way. And here's a few quick things I want to say up top. They're, I'm going to say I'm quick, but they really are important. Um, conflict is inevitable, but destruction of a relationship is optional, Right? It doesn't have to be destroyed. No, it may happen, but it, it, it's still optional. Relationships are always worth restoring. It may not be easy. I mean, God restored one with you and me. A conflict that is dealt with in the right way will actually make a relationship stronger. I remember my um, counseling and psychology professor telling me, you know, when we talk about conflict, he talked about you, you got these two, you know, railroad ties going down, right? The track's going down. And he says, every time you resolve a conflict, you're putting the tie down and spiking it, and it makes the track stronger, right? But every time you don't resolve a conflict, you're popping up that tie and making, making uh, the tracks less stable. Check out what God's Word says. Better a dry crust eaten in peace than a house filled with feasting and conflict, right? And I love uh, Psalm 133, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is precious as the anointing oil that was poured on Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. I mean, that doesn't sound all that great to me, right? That sounds kind of like, uh, kind of nasty, man. Give me some Dawn, wipe off the grease. But apparently that's a really good thing, right? Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. 
And there, in this place of harmony between brothers, the Lord pronounces His blessings, even life everlasting. Then Romans 12, 18 is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So I want to talk about some basic ground rules for dealing with conflict. Now in boxing, you know, and boxing is really in my mind yesterday because, you know, Gentile had a playoff game and they lost. They're a four seed, lost to the one seed. Umpire blew a call, cost us five runs. I'm not bitter. I am over it. Not. Ridiculous, man. But anyhow. Um, but then later on in the day, you know, it was really awesome Father Sunday. I got to introduce him to Rocky Three and Rocky Four, you know, Drago and Clubber Lang. So, so boxing is really in the front of my mind right now. And, and, and in boxing, the referee, before the fight, right, he calls them to the front. This is okay. We're going to have a good, clean fight. Here, here are the ground rules. No punching below the belt, no gouging, no tripping. And if Mike Tyson happens to be in one of the corners, no biting off parts of your opponent's ear, right? The ground rules are important because they shape the expectation and action of both contenders. Husbands and wives, moms and dads, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, God knows that we are going to fight. He just wants it to be a good, clean fight. Get it? Good. A few ground rules. Number one, minimize exposure. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him, work it out between the two of you. If you're taking notes, circle, work it out between the two of you. Michael didn't do this. Instead, she came, in, came at David in front of everyone else. Right? Brothers and sisters, this is never a good way to resolve conflict. Understand, minimizing exposure is critical in resolving conflict. In fact, Jesus commands it, right? Jesus commands you to work it out between the two of you. In other words, don't involve other people unnecessarily. In other words, don't try to build a coalition against the person who hurt you. In other words, in a world of social media, don't be posting and tweeting about your issues with someone. That is a very bad idea. And you know, whenever I see people garage selling their family issues on Facebook or Twitter, I think, seriously? Do you think that's going to help anything? That's not going to... That's not going to resolve conflict. That's just going to revolve conflict, right? It's going to come back and come back and come back. I mean, if I post on my Facebook wall, my wife, she's such a jerk. You know, you know she doesn't appreciate me. and She's so mean to me. And I post that, and hundreds of people read that. And some people make comments on that. How is that helping anything? It's not. Question, why do people do things like that? Why do you do things like that? Why do we? Well, Heibel said this once. I think one of the clearest manifestations of the nature of evil is what we tend to do when relationships go bad. Why in God's name, if you and I have a rift, would you go tell five other people? It doesn't make any sense from a reconciliation standpoint. It doesn't serve the body of Christ well. The best explanation for, what, for why you would do that would just be the four-letter word, evil. I agree. Bottom line, right? Don't involve other people unnecessarily. Michael, mess up on that. Next, identify the heart of the issue. Now, understand when conflict rises its ugly head, we need to identify the heart of the issue, right? Unfortunately, we don't usually do that. And instead, we, like Michael and David, we launch into the attack mode, pointing fingers, raising our voices, and trying to blame. And listen, when people in the family are consumed with fixing the blame, they will never fix the problem. 
And David comes home and Michael attacks. You're such a lousy husband and you are such a terrible king. What a terrible job you're doing of being a king. And he immediately becomes defensive and attacks her. Oh, you want to talk about being a lousy spouse? Well, here you go. And boom, he lets her have it. Listen, neither one takes the time to ask, okay, what's the real issue here anyhow? What's beneath the surface? And see, according to the Bible, there's really only one source beneath the surface of all the conflicts that we have. You know what that is? James says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I don't know, James does a lot of things. He takes me off. She never, my mom and dad, these kids of mine, James continues, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Well now, wait a minute, little bro of Jesus. <laughs> You're saying it's me? You're saying I'm the problem? I, I don't think you've been listening, James. You don't know the whole story. James says you want something, but you don't get it. You see, every time there's a conflict, it's because we want something. Listen, anytime there's a conflict, even the ones that happen over and over again, it's because we want something. I mean, think about some of your most recent conflicts. I mean, dig deep, peel back the layers, look beneath the surface. What do you see? And maybe you're thinking, no, it's not something I want. It's something I deserve. It's something they owe me. It's something they promised me. Every time there's a conflict, there's something we want that we don't have. And James says, so you kill. Now, he's talking to people in the church. He's not talking to soldiers on the battlefield. So this is hyperbole. Basically, James is saying that there are things that, that, that we want so badly at times, that we want to such an extent that we're willing to hurt the people we care about the most in order to get it. He says, so you kill. And you know what? Some of us have seen parents kill their relationship with their kids. We've seen husbands kill their relationships with their wives. We've seen wives kill their relationship with their husbands. Parents kill the relationship with their kids. All because they wanted something, they, they wanted it their way, and they did not get what they wanted. Uh, understand, when we want something from our husband, wife, son, daughter, mom, dad, if we want it bad enough, if we, we lose our perspective and our desire to get what we want from them or out of them, we have the power to destroy and to kill the relationship. And here's how we defend it. I just want what's best for them. I just want my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter to live up to their full potential. See, we lie to ourselves because it's really not about them. It's, it's all about us. Do you know why we hurt the people who are close to us the most? Because they're close to us. And because we want something from them. And if we want something from them bad enough, we have the potential, James says, to kill the relationship. And this the whole time that we are fussing, fighting, fuming, criticizing, belittling, writing nasty notes, thinking nasty thoughts, making nasty posts, telling ourselves, it's them, it's them, it's them, it's them. In steps the brother of Jesus, guided by the breath of God, say, no, 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 no. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. You want something and you're not getting it. And you're going to use your words and actions to get it one way or the other, regardless of what it costs, regardless of who it hurts. 
I don't know, maybe Michael wanted more of David's time and attention. Maybe David uh, wanted, wanted his wife to honor and respect him more. Maybe he wanted her to, to believe in him and to think, hey, you're doing a great job as a king. I'm really proud of you. Bottom line, they, they wanted something and they were not getting it. And in case we miss it, James says it again, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. But question, what if in the middle of a family fight, both parties would stop and realize that part of the reason why they're feeling the way they are, frustrated, angry, irritated, hurt, is because they both want something, and they're not getting it. I mean, what if in the middle of an argument, right, we would say, hey, hey, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. You know what's going on here? There's something that I want, and I'm not getting it. And the other person would say, hey, hey, you know what? What's going on here? There's something that I want, and I'm not getting it. I'm going to put this phrase on the screen so we can say it, at least get it in our mouths. Hey, you know part of the problem is here? I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting my way, all right? On a count of three, let's say that. Hey, you know what the, okay, that was awful. Okay, did, did, I, did I forget the count again? Like a... One, two, three. Hey. Uh, count. One, two. Uh, here I am blaming you guys. Like, you guys stink. I'm thinking it's you, it's you, it's you. The guy says, no, it's me. It's me. Imagine if we did that in our homes. It, it, it would take the temperature level of every conflict immediately down. And Andy Stanley talks about conflict and talking to couples who are having conflict in their marriage. And he, he says how he'll take a, a circle and he say, okay, this circle represents your conflict in your marriage right now. And he'll say, I want you to mark out the slice that you own. You know what he said? And he's, he's obviously counseled a lot of people. You know, he, he's pastor of a mega church. Not one person has ever drawn their slice. He says, he said, he says this, this is why. Because if you own a slice, you have to be nice. Right? See, the problem is, as soon as we own part of the problem, all of a sudden our energy level, our litigating, our anger goes out like air coming out of a balloon. We, 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 we lose our argument. We lose our leverage. Remember, we never win an argument in the family anyway. That's why many times the best defense in the family is no defense. If every person in the family begins to do this, it would change everything because in the middle of the conflict, rather than pointing the finger, we'll be focusing on looking in the, looking in the mirror and saying, hey man, here's what I own. You know, here's, the part, here's what I own in it. And next, find a good place in time. I mean, David comes home from work. He's excited. It's been a great day, a great victory. The Ark of God is coming into the city for the first time. And his wife comes to the door. She's got her hands on her hip. She's got that look that wives can give, right? That was not a good time and place, right? To resolve conflict. Resolving conflict, timing is everything. We need to find the right time and place. And maybe as soon as someone comes home from work or from school or, or, or a tough meeting, maybe that's not the right time. Maybe... At the dinner table, maybe that's not the right time. 
Some would have said that if you want the bedroom to feel like a playground, then you shouldn't turn it into a battleground, right? Find the right time and find the right place. Don't meet when either of you are tired, when you're rushed, when you know you're going to be interrupted. However, don't wait for the tree to fall before you begin to deal with things. The best time is when both of you are at your best. Next is to, ground rule is to remember to put in your mouth guard. Reckless words pierce like a sword. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, at the start of a boxing match, you know, both boxers, before they get in the ring and start pounding each other, what do they put in? They put in a, a mouth guard, and it's essential for them, and it's essential for us. And guess who? Michael and David, they never put in their mouth guard. Remember, words can cut deeply, and the wounds that they inflict can linger and fester for years, for decades. That's why we must be willing to control our mouth, especially in the heat of the fight. That is, if we ever hope to build the relationship beyond its present conflict. Understand, the real art of conversation, this is good, is not only saying the right thing at the right time, but also learning to leave, what's that next word? Unsaid. The wrong thing at the wrong time. You ever, you ever mess that one up? I do that a lot as a dingbat husband, right? And I even know it, right? I'm thinking, this is probably not good, but I just got to say it. I got to get it out there for some reason. And when it is out there, it's like, gosh, I wish I didn't say it. You know, because it, it, didn't, it didn't work, right? You know, leaving things unsaid. Just because you're thinking it don't mean you have to say it, right? Now, Micah may not have liked David dancing around in his Batman boxers. But she could have started out by talking about, hey, what a great day. What a great accomplishment. You know, David came home one in praise and encouragement, and instead he got criticism. Oh, well, the king of Israel had distinguished himself today. I wonder what happened if Michael would have encouraged David and waited until later to have that very difficult conversation. And what happened if David would have listened to Michael and said, you know what, Michael, don't worry about those slave girls. <laughs> There's only one woman in the world for me, and that's you. Do you think things maybe would have worked out a little bit differently? Wearing your mouth guard is essential in any conflict. Paul writes, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. This would include tweets and Facebook posts. According to their needs, and it may benefit those who listen. James Rock, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Guys, we're terrible at this. It doesn't say quick to fix problems. And I know that. I know that's stupid. You're looking at stupid. <laughs> stupid is as stupid does. Because when I try to fix the problem, I'm saying it's really not a problem. <laughs> like, man, you're like freaked out about this. But hey, look, in like one minute, I can see that it's nothing to be a problem about, Right? I know that (laughs) if you're with me guys you know it too we're stupid stupid is as stupid does right Um, slow to speak slow to become angry for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires next ground rule attack the problem not the person like I said if we're consumed with fixing the blame we'll never fix the problem the truth is you're either going to attack the problem or attack the person and David and Michael choose to attack the person Wow, you sure look like an idiot dancing out there. What a lousy king you are. Oh, yeah? 
Well, at least I didn't come from a family of losers, right? I understand resolving conflict, how you say it, is important as what you say. If you say it offensively, it'll usually be received defensively, right? And you notice that David is saying, my family's more spiritual than you. He's bringing up the past, right? And that's our ace, right? In a conflict. Like, I mean, we're up against the ropes, man. They're like, okay, man, I'm not doing so good here. You go, wait a second. <laughs> Let me bring up the past. I got a big list right here for you. Here it comes, right? That's what we do. And then we wonder, listen, anytime we get historical in a conflict, the other person will probably get hysterical, right? It, it, that's just the way it happens. We get historical, they get hysterical. When we attack the problem, and not the person, though, we're, 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 we are reinforcing something very critical in a relationship. We're saying, hey, I may differ with you. I may be irritated with you. I may be angry, upset with you. I may totally disagree with you. But let there be no doubt about it. I'm committed to this relationship. We're in this together. We're on the same team. I am not going anywhere. I love you, and I am committed to us. Get it? Good. And the last ground rule brings us back to James 4. Ask God. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You ask for yourself. James is like, hey, hey, like before you jump into the ring, before you start swinging and jabbing, has it ever occurred to you to pause and talk to me? Has it ever occurred to you to pause and come to me in prayer? Maybe pray something like, yes, Lord, there's something that I want from my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, and I'm not getting it. And Lord, I'm starting to realize that they may not even really have it to give to me in the first place. So Lord, could you help us to work this out? Lord, help me to examine my motives. I know how selfish I can be. I don't want it to always be about me and about pleasing me. I, I want it to be first about you and your glory and second about them and their needs. So Lord, could you come into this mess and help us out? Understand, most conflict is rooted in unmet needs. Some of these needs can only be met by God. And when you expect anyone, a friend, a spouse, a boss, a family member, to meet a need that only God can fulfill, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and bitterness. No one can meet all your needs except God. You don't have because you do not ask God. Hey, Grove, do you know why you fight in your family? And you know why they fight back? This comes from your desires that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it, so you kill. And listen, as Jesus followers, we always have to pause and ask God before we allow the conflict storm to get totally out of control. We always need to deal with the vertical first, right? We're always running to the horizontal, right? I'm ready to launch some missiles right now. You know, I, got, I, got, I got my sights set. Deal with the vertical first and then the horizontal. You know, I, I believe David's life would have been entirely different. I mean, that sad picture of him having to leave the city would never have happened if he would handle conflict in a healthy way. And you know what? I, I don't think David ever thought this would happen. Right? I mean, he loved, this guy loved God. He, 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 he put his life on the line for God. He worshiped God. And, and yet, this is how his story ended, or part of his ending of his story. 
question, if the walls of your home could speak, what story would they tell? Would they tell a story of conflict? I mean, you were determined it wouldn't, it wouldn't turn out this way, but it has. As a child, you would lay awake at night and you'd take the pillow to cover your ears because you did not want to hear your mom and dad screaming at each other. And you said, I'm never going to yell, but you yelled. And you said, I'm never going to hit, but you hit. And you said, I- I'm never, I'm never going to cuss, but you cuss. Yet your story is still being written. And maybe the walls of your house would speak of disappointment. I thought we always would be in love, but now we seem more like business partners. I, I dreamed of what it would be like to be a mom forever, but now I just feel so overwhelmed and completely stressed out. I, I never thought finances would be a problem for us, but now this debt is suffocating us. I, I was going to be the most loving wife ever, the most thoughtful husband. I was going to be the most patient mom, the most encouraging dad. But brothers and sisters, your story is still being written. I understand God specializes in rewriting stories. That's who he is. That's what he does. And, and, and maybe you look at the situation and you think, no, it's too late. I, I don't know what I can do now. I sure wish I'd known about this 5, 10, 15 years ago. And, and, you know, but, but what do I do now? I think that's how David felt. It's just too late. But the truth is, God can take your story and turn tragedy into triumph. That's what he does. That's who he is. You see, instead of the walls of your house telling the story of anger, God wants the walls of your house to tell the story of grace. Instead of the walls of your house telling the story of broken promises, he wants the walls of your house to tell the story of renewed commitment. Instead of your walls of your house telling the story of disappointment, he wants the walls of your house to tell the story of a hope that is found in him. I understand, as we have gone through this series, we've Look at different biblical families. We focus a lot on our relationship with each other down here. However, each week I seem to come back to the same place, reminding each of us that when it comes to family, when it comes to family matters, when it comes to your family, the most important factor is your relationship with God. It's kind of like the illustration, right? You know, if you get the top button right, all the other buttons line up. Right? I was going to wear my shirt all jacked up today, right? You know, but it was just going to be, it was just too uncomfortable, right? You know, but, but, you know, if you don't get this top button, right, nothing else lines up. No matter how did you try? I remember one time it took me like 10 minutes to get it lined up. Finally, I put it on the t-shirt, right? Like, forget about it, right? You know, if you get this top button right, everything else is going to line up in your family. Amen. You know, there's a story in Luke 13 that I never saw before and read it this week. I'm mean, like, the guy, did you just like install this story recently? It's about a lady who for 18 years had been bent over, not able to stand straight. And, and, and she meets Jesus. It's the Sabbath. He, went, he's, he ticked off a bunch of religious leaders. But this lady, 18 years, and Jesus healed her and she stood straight. And maybe you feel bent over, right, in some of your family issues, right? 18 years, 10 years, 15 years. But I want to remind you of the kind of God you serve. He's a God that can take what is bent over and make it straight again. Amen? Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And just be with us. Be with us as we... Reflect on our family. Be with us as we reflect on the cross. 
and where you ended the conflict that reigned between us and you because of our sin and rebellion. Be with us as in a few minutes we take communion as we celebrate the broken body and shed blood. And God, I I pray for every family in here, God, that, Lord, that if we would just do, if we would just do what you told us to do, we could resolve conflict in a God-honor and healthy way in a way that restores relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.